Hello, welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. I'm Razia Iqbal. In a moment after President Putin wins another term of office in the Russian elections, what does his victory mean for relations with the West? That's our top story today. Also coming up in the programme, a special report on the opiate crisis in the United States. Opiates are so incredibly powerful on your mind and on your body. I've stared death in the face multiple times, multiple overdoses where, you know, they tell me, you know, you you shouldn't be alive right now. I would wake up in, in ambulances. I had overdosed at the bus station, you know, in the bathroom. Immediately after, every time, the, the first thing I would do was call my dealer. Well, could a new type of court hold a way out for the nation's addicts? Stay with us for that. Uh, Lots coming up this hour. We begin, though, with a foregone conclusion, though don't switch off just yet, because despite that, there is much to say about the outcome of the Russian election. President Putin begins yet another term in office. He's already been in power for 18 years and now has secured another six. Only Joseph Stalin ruled for longer. There was no real opposition to Mr Putin, so it could be argued that it wasn't really an election merely a coronation or at least a confirmation. He described his victory as a sign of confidence and hope. Others argue that perhaps it's more a sign of the fact that the Kremlin barred his main challenger from running, Alexei Navalny, that the Kremlin controls the media and rigged the ballot so brazenly that ballot boxes were stuffed in front of watching journalists. In a moment, we'll discuss what President Putin will do with his new term. First, our Moscow correspondent Sarah Rainsford reports on the night he claimed victory. It was the victory rally he never doubted he'd join. Vladimir Putin strode onto stage beneath the Kremlin walls to lead a crowd chanting Russia. The smiling president called his re-election a vote of confidence and promised to work for the future of a great nation. All day Sunday, polling stations across Russia had sounded like this. That's because the Kremlin's big concern at this election was turnout. The music was all part of the effort to secure maximum support for another six years of Vladimir Putin. Not everyone here was a Putin fan, though. Can I ask you who you will vote for? It will be not Putin. I want some changes because uh, he was a president too long and um, he must uh, go out. <laughs> But most I spoke to were like Elena, who told me under Putin's presidency, Russia had risen from its knees. The choice of tune by the balalaika man suggests that as it rises again, Russia hasn't rejected the West entirely. But many here do see the outside world as hostile again. And like Dima, they cast Vladimir Putin as their protector. We say he has iron balls. In comparison to all the politicians that I see, I mean, he's a very tough guy. And they follow... It's probably for the... It's an attitude that has history, as I found out when I went to visit a pensioner. Valentina gets her information from state television, now under tight central control. And though she admits Russians haven't got rich under Vladimir Putin, 
That's not what matters to her. He's the man who did a lot for Russia. He pushed Russia away from this precipice at which he had approached and the Yeltsin. Russia cannot live with a weak president who looks at the West and wants to be loved there. Russia needs a very strong man. That strong man is now at the centre of a storm with Britain over the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. But in his first comments on the case, after his victory speech, Vladimir Putin denied any link to the attempted murder in Salisbury. Any reasonable person knows that it's total rubbish, ravings and nonsense that anyone in Russia would permit such antics on the eve of the election and the World Cup. To those Russians celebrating their president's return to power, such comments will play just fine. Abroad, they're a clear sign that Putin 4 will look very much like Putin 3. A sudden thaw in relations with the West, then, looks highly unlikely. That was uh, Sarah Rainsford, our Moscow correspondent. So what does Mr Putin's victory mean for Russia and its relations abroad? I've been speaking to Andrei Afanasyev, a pro-government presenter for Sagrad TV in Moscow, and Arkady Ostrovsky, Russia's editor for The Economist magazine, who also spoke to me from Moscow. Andrei Afanasyev first. Was this an election or a coronation? It was an election, and uh, the thing is that the main candidate is just stronger than anyone else. And uh, there were eight candidates, and uh, people were able to choose among them. So I I wouldn't say that it was a coronation. Uh, Coronation happens in Great Britain, not in Russia. You say there were eight candidates, but uh, there there were clearly people who were not allowed to to stand, uh, not least Mr. Navalny. And there have been reports of the stuffing of ballot boxes, indeed in front of cameras, which does suggest that uh, this wasn't entirely free or fair. First of all, uh, Alexei Navalny wasn't authorized to do that by law because uh, he is a criminal and he he was sentenced for a crime and you cannot do this according to Russian law. So that's just a matter of observing or not observing acting laws in our country. And uh, second, all the violations that uh, happened during the elections are taken in consideration and the results on uh, those polling stations uh, uh, are not taken into consideration. And I can tell you that uh, this election has been the most transparent and the most free in Russian history. And it is uh, confirmed not only by Russians, but also by Uh, numerous international observers. Well, let's look at those numerous international observers. The Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe says that restrictions on fundamental freedoms as well as on candidate registration have limited the space for political engagement and resulted in a lack of genuine competition. Look, well, uh, they once again are talking about Navalny and uh, saying that is disrespectful to Russian law. Because according to Russian law, Alexei Navalny cannot be a presidential candidate. The fact that you are paying so much attention to this person is uh, really strange to me because uh, as Russian journalist, as a member of Russian society and a young person, I'm a millennial uh, born in 1989, I can tell you that Alexei Navalny is not that popular and is not that influential to be afraid of him. So... The matter of him not taking part in these elections is just a matter of law. 
and him breaking the law and losing the right to take part in the elections for a certain period of time. Of course, well, we, we won't dwell on uh, uh, Alexei Navalny, but he does, of course, say that these charges were trumped up by the by the Kremlin. Uh, Arkady, let's uh, let's turn to you. What what is it that President Putin is now going to attempt to do internally in Russia? What are the challenges that face him? Well, could I just say first of all a word on on, on the nature of this elections? Because these two things are very connected. In terms of this election, you know, elections are just a choice. What we've seen uh, this Sunday in Moscow was a very carefully choreographed spectacle, which is is designed to create a sense of legitimacy, designed to create a sense of unity. But the main challenger in this election, Alexei Navalny, uh, has been barred from standing. Now, this is disingenuous to say that he's a criminal because... Russia is a member of the European Council. It's a signatory to the European Convention of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights, which is a legal decision, has cleared Alexei Navalny of those charges and said those charges ought to be removed. Now, Russia did not comply with the decision of the European Court of Human Rights, which has jurisdiction above that of the Russian quarter because Russia is a signatory to it. Yes, it does show the Kremlin's ability to, because it controls the television, because it also controls the salaries and pensions of, you know, some 40% of the Russian population who are in the public service, allows the Kremlin to force, entice, manipulate those people to come and vote. So I wouldn't call it an election, it's a confirmation. Uh, It worked uh, for now. In terms of what this means, because... um, Precisely because it's not a free and democratic elections as elections are understood. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's legitimacy doesn't therefore lie in uh, a consensus of the elites and the consensus of the people that he represents or reflects the free choice of these people. Uh, Andrei uh, uh, Afanasyev, uh, w- what's your response to what you've just heard from uh, Arkady Ostrovsky, that, that there is very un- it's very unlikely that we'll see a thaw with the West and that Mr Putin is on course for conflict? Well, I wouldn't say that uh, Vladimir Putin is on course on of conflict with the West because he did not start it. And uh, all the measures, uh, all the uh, sanctions that Russia imposed on West were a response to what was West doing to us. So, I mean, it's just, you know, the matter of diplomacy. Great Britain was the first to expel 23 Russian diplomats and uh, the expansion of uh, British diplomats from Moscow was a response. What what you seem to be painting is a picture of Russia as the victim in all of this. To to what extent uh, you do know, you Russia agree is with too big. Russia is too big and too strong to be uh, a victim of uh, someone but itself. But I can tell you that uh, the way um, you colleagues cover it, I cannot say it's fair and balanced way of covering it, especially in matters of poison and Mr. Skripal and uh, all the other issues. And yeah. can, can I just ask You're you both welcome. one final question? Andrei Afanasia first. Yeah. Do you think that the next six years, President Putin will be working at least to a certain extent trying to shape who might succeed him? Or do you think that this is the beginning of him staying on for as long as he possibly can, that he might actually change the constitution in order to, to, to try and stay on? 
someone in power. Vladimir Putin has uh, proven himself as a person who respects the acting constitution. And in numerous interviews and in numerous statements, he said that he would never violate the constitution. Or I can tell you that in these 18 years, he hasn't violated Russian constitution a single time. Arkady Ostrovsky, do you think that he will be thinking in this six-year term about grooming a successor? Well, yes and no. I mean, the two things are not mutually exclusive. I don't think that Vladimir Putin is going anywhere if he can help it after, you know, he'll stay in one position or another, be it president, be it national leader, be it a chairman of the Bridge Association as Deng Xiaoping was or the Judo Association. He will stay in power. I think it's too late for him to leave power. I think it's unsafe. It's This term is going to be ultimately about his survival. Put it this way, he will be thinking about how to transfer the wealth, this kind of conditional rights on property to next generation. We already see this happening. There are technocrats he's appointing in the government and, you know, the regional government. So there will be two processes going on at the same time. There'll be a process of him trying to design, design a role for himself to stay in power while also trying to re- rejuvenate the system quite literally to bring in the young people. That was Arkady Ostrovsky, Russia editor for The Economist magazine. And I was also speaking to Andrei Afanasyev, a pro-government presenter for Zagrad TV in Moscow. You're listening to NewsHour. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour live from the BBC in London. Britain and the European Union have agreed on much of the deal for Britain's departure in what both sides have hailed as a decisive step. Britain's Brexit Secretary David Davis and the EU's chief negotiator Michel Barnier said they'd achieved a legal accord on how much Britain owes, the rights of citizens in the other's territory and a transition period. David Davis said the British Prime Minister Theresa May had set out a powerful vision for Brexit. My job and that of my team is to deliver on that vision. And in doing so, we must seize the moment and carry forward the momentum of the past few weeks. The deal we struck today, on top of that agreed in December, should give us confidence that a good deal for the United Kingdom and the European Union is closer than ever before. David Davis, the Brexit Secretary. The BBC's Adam Fleming is in Brussels. So why is a transition period needed and what will happen during that period and how long will it last? So from Brexit Day, March the 29th, 2019, until the end of December 2020, the UK will be legally out of the EU. It will not have a seat at the table where decisions are made. But the terms of trade, more broadly than just trade, the relationship overall, will stay roughly the same and be on the same basis. EU law will continue to apply until the end of that transition period. The reason the UK want it is to provide certainty for business so that they don't face a cliff edge on Brexit Day. They don't have to make two sets of changes. So, for example, on Brexit Day and then when the future partnership and the trade agreement with the EU has been settled, it buys a lot more time. Uh, And the reason it ends in December 2020 is from an EU perspective, that makes sense. They have a seven-year budget cycle, which ends in December 2020. So it's a natural period for them to say, right, that's when the transition period should come to an end. And of course, the UK prefers to call it an implementation phase, because they say what will be happening during that period is that the building blocks of the future relationship will be being put into place. Well, let's look at uh, one of the areas where there has been uh, no agreement yet, which 
which is the border with the Republic of Ireland, which of course will stay in the European Union and the border with Northern Ireland is really the issue. Should just explain what's been said about that. Okay, so at the last big milestone in the Brexit process back in December, the two sides agreed three possible ways forward for making sure there is no border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Option A was that you have an amazing future relationship that means you don't need a border because goods flow freely. Option B was that you have technological unique solutions that mean you don't need any infrastructure at the border. Option C was that you somehow make sure that Northern Ireland remains aligned to the EU rules you need so that life across the border can carry on as normal. Now, that's quite controversial in the UK because some people fear it could mean new barriers, um, real and 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 philosophical, if you like, being established between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, the document, the Brexit Treaty that's in front of us now, only has option C spelt out in detail in it. And Prime Minister Theresa May of the UK said that no Prime Minister could sign up to what was being proposed. What's happened now is that both sides have managed to find a form of words that both are comfortable with that they can at least proceed with the negotiations. So last week, it looked like there was a possibility that Ireland's concerns about what the UK had said about this could prevent agreement on the transition period and also could prevent what's going to happen later in the week, which is when EU leaders will give the green light to the talks about the future relationship starting. I'm yet to actually work out what they've actually agreed on Ireland, but they've agreed enough to get them over the hurdle this week so that it doesn't become a stumbling block this week. That was the BBC's Adam Fleming speaking to me from Brussels. And uh, if you still want more explanation on this development, uh, do go to our website, bbc.com forward slash news. Now, you'll have heard a great deal on this programme and elsewhere about the recent dramatic political developments regarding North Korea and the possible talks between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. In the potential diplomatic breakthrough, it's been easy to focus on the nuclear issue and forget exactly what kind of country North Korea is and the particular nature of both the poverty as well as social and political repression endured by those who live there. A few years ago, the United Nations commissioned a report on human rights violations in North Korea. The man who conducted that commission of inquiry was the Australian Justice Michael Kirby. He came into the NewsHour studio earlier today and I began by asking him if anything had changed in North Korea since he published those findings. I think it's still substantially the same. There have been little steps forward. Generally, when North Korea thought there was an advantage, uh, a little bit of a charm offensive was turned on. But once the nation states of the United Nations didn't really respond, then the charm was turned off and we saw the other face of North Korea, the face that was revealed in the report which we delivered. There has also much more recently been another uh, report from the human rights organisation Christian Solidarity Worldwide, and they appear to suggest that there are small shifts in the way in which people are possibly dissenting, the way in which the economy is allowing people to see the disparities between rich and poor, and also the access to information there is a sense that there is a shift in the way in which people are operating, ordinary people, inside North Korea. And there's another report from the International Bar Association. It also uh, reported small shifts, as you've called them. 
they are to be welcomed, but really they're minuscule in comparison to what needs to happen. And it's still a very repressed and suppressed society and information is still very much controlled by the the government. It's certainly true to say, isn't it, that when you're looking at the possible impact of a country like North Korea having nuclear weapons, that that is much more important than the human rights violations, or or perhaps not in your view? I can't concede that. Having a country like North Korea in control of at least 20 and probably 60 nuclear weapons, that is a big human rights issue in itself because that is a great danger to the right to life and the environmental rights of people on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. So they're very much interconnected and there will be no peace on the Korean Peninsula whilst the situation in North Korea is as grim as was described in our report. When you talk about this particular episode and the dramatic political developments that we're seeing as a charm offensive, is it wrong for the West to place any hope in the possibility of a positive outcome? No, because we're talking about things existential here. We're talking about the survival potentially of the human species. If we can't deal with the North Korean proliferation of nuclear weapons, then the risks to the human species is enormous. So we we really must respond. And, and it's a good thing that President Trump has responded. In a way, maybe the fact that he hasn't had the same background and training and the linear, logical State Department brilliant training in, in negotiation has been a, an advantage that he's looked outside the square, he's, he's open to the discussion, and we just have to hope that Uh, he'll have a lot of good guidance on what can be achieved and how to go about getting it. And that was the Honourable Justice Michael Kirby, who was former judge on the High Court of Australia, which is Australia's Supreme Court, and uh, former chair of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights Violations in North Korea. It made its report back in 2014. Don't go away. Lots more coming up in the second half of the programme. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour. Coming up next, chemical weapons experts have arrived in the UK to assess the substance involved in the poisoning of a former Russian double agent. But first, our daily look at the world of business. And there is a new man at the top of the Bank of China. Well, he isn't entirely new, as he was the deputy not so long ago. His name is Yi Gang, and I've been speaking to Tom Orlick of Bloomberg about his appointment and the challenges he faces. He is someone who is familiar to China watchers, but maybe not to the rest of the world. Uh, He is a veteran of China's central bank. He headed the monetary policy department. He managed the exchange rate uh, for China's central bank. And in the last few years, he's been deputy governor. Uh, Zhou Xiaotran once once introduced Yi by saying that he was basically responsible for everything that happens at the central bank. So I think that kind of tells you the story. Is there a sense, though, that given that we're looking at continuity here, that he does still have big shoes to fill in the same way that Ben Bernanke was talked about filling Alan Greenspan's shoes? 
Yeah, I think the Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan analogy is a very apt one. I mean, Alan Greenspan uh, was a legend uh, and Ben Bernanke had extremely uh, big shoes to fill. At the same time, Alan Greenspan had overseen the buildup of enormous financial imbalances in the US economy, which ultimately resulted in the financial crisis. Um, the situation for Yi Gang is in some ways pretty similar. Zhou Xiaotuan is a legend. He's the architect of China's financial reform and opening. Uh, Yi Gang has enormous shoes to fill. At the same time, on Joe's watch, an enormous credit bubble that has begun to build up. Now to Joe's credit, in the last two years, he's taken steps to try and contain that credit bubble. Even so, the risk of some kind of financial shock on Yi Gang's watch are really high. And so what is it that he needs to do to steady the ship or keep it as steady as it has been to date? I mean, China's benefited in the last two years from the return of demand from the US. The US consumer has come back and that's lifted Chinese exports. And it's made the job of the central bank as they try and keep growth going while also managing down credit a little bit easier and the big challenge facing Yi Gang would be if he has to manage a difficult domestic deleveraging agenda at the same time as the U.S. administration, the Donald Trump administration, is moving the U.S. and China closer towards something that looks like a trade war. He was educated in the United States. What's the importance or relevance of that for the rest of the world? I think people make too much of the U.S. education or lack of U.S. education of China's policymakers. Um, I think the important thing about Yi Gang is not that he studied in the U.S. and he spent time as a as a professor at, uh, in Indiana, but rather that he is an extremely skilled technocrat and an extremely qualified uh, monetary policymaker who spent really his entire career preparing for this job. And that was Tom Orlick of Bloomberg uh, talking to me about uh, the man who has just taken over at the top of the Bank of China, Yi Gang. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. We've had tit-for-tat action on diplomatic expulsions. We've had an escalation of words, a war of words, and there have been expressions of support for the UK over how it's reacted to Moscow over the poisoning of ex-Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury. Today, the EU offers the UK unqualified solidarity in its investigation into the poisoning. A statement urged Russia to address the UK's questions and called for a full disclosure of its development of Novichok, the nerve agent used in the attack. The European Union strongly condemns the attack that took place against Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury, UK, on 4th of March 2018, that also left a police officer seriously ill. The lives of many citizens were threatened by this reckless and illegal act. The European Union takes extremely seriously the UK government's assessment that it is highly likely that the Russian Federation is responsible. The European Union expresses its unqualified solidarity with the UK and its support, including for the UK's efforts to bring those responsible for this crime to justice. 
That is the statement from the EU offering the UK unqualified solidarity. Meanwhile, a team from the Netherlands-based Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons is due to visit the military research base at Porton Down in Britain today. The organisation has been invited by the UK to independently verify the nerve agents. So what is it that the OPCW will be bringing to this investigation? Philip Ingram is a former British military intelligence officer and someone who has studied chemical warfare. I think the OPCW are bringing two things. One, uh, the international aspect to it, so that it's not just the EU. This is a global organisation with 192 countries that that have signed up um, to be part of it, including uh, Russia. Um, And it will also then bring an independent oversight to the accusations that have come out um, from the UK and hopefully then, if proven, stop Russia being able to put out all the disinformation that it's doing at the moment. Well, when you talk about disinformation, can you just clarify for us, the Russians uh, at the outset said that Britain had not given Russia enough time to respond to the allegations that uh, the Russian state was responsible for the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. What, what's, the, what's the truth of, of that particular issue? Should, should the UK have given them 10 days, which is what uh, uh, Mr Lavrov was saying, the foreign minister? I don't think it would have mattered whether we'd given them 10 days, two weeks or three months. You know, they'd have come back with it with the same thing. Um, these sorts of agents are kept under such strict control um, because they're, they're almost, they're easier to move around than nuclear weapons and they're more deadly if they fall into the, into the wrong hands. Um, and therefore, you know, the Russians will have known whether they did it or they did not do it. Um, and my personal view is, I, th- I think it was done politically and therefore um, uh, will, will have been um, sanctioned at the highest levels. Let's look then at the, the, the nerve agent in a little more detail. How, how is it possible to source that kind of a, a, a nerve agent? Is it possible, for example, to find out which laboratory it was made in or even which scientist yeah. made it? I, I, th- I think um, one of the things about the Novichok agents is that it, it's, it's a group of agents and it's a group of agents that not much is known about. But whenever um, the scientists at Port and Down and the scientists from the OPCW get in and look at it, they'll be able to see certain signatures as to the way this is put together. And that will tend to indicate what laboratory it's come from and could indicate what's, uh, which scientist has done it. Because scientists, whether they're working top secret uh, environments or not, will at some stage have published learned papers on what they're doing because they love to boast about it. They love to get the information out there and that will give clues as to potentially who actually um, manufactured this agent. OK, so identifying it is is the beginning of the investigation for the British authorities. Uh, a bigger challenge, I suppose, is how did it get to this cathedral city of Salisbury? I, th- I think that's a very worrying thing to to consider because uh, if it's been brought in by an assassin um, and and the assassin has then used it um, against the the Skripals, uh, then the assassin has gone away with the container that they brought it in or has dumped that container somewhere. Um, if it was brought in by uh, Yulia Skripal in her luggage, um, then you know that's come through the airport um, and through the air freight system. Hopefully, her bags weren't opened anywhere. But what we don't know, and there hasn't been a clear statement from anyone saying that there, uh, the, the whole danger has been isolated in Salisbury and there's not a potential danger to the public elsewhere. Mm, well, I mean, it, th- th- that really does uh, focus the mind, doesn't it? The possibility that the substance could be somewhere in the UK still. 
uh, you know, if it's an assassin that's come in, the assassin could easily be in the UK or may have dumped um, their method of carrying it down somewhere. It could be in a bin you know, by a school in a, uh, a railway station. You know, it, it, this is a very would be a very small container, but it would contain uh, enough agent. Um, it would be contaminated with enough agent to cause an awful lot of harm. Is what we're talking about a, 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 an issue of just patience now? I mean, how how long could it take for the OPCW to verify the details that you and I have just been been trying to to unpick? Well, I think the OPCW themselves have said this is going to take them two weeks. Um, it, it is very very complicated, um, and you know, the police investigation um, I, I've, I've read could go on for months because again it's extremely complicated, bringing together so many um, agencies and collecting so much evidence and trying to work out you know exactly what has gone on here. But uh, you know, uh, two weeks I think is is a time that we'd expect something out of the OPCW, and there's going to be a degree of international pressure to get it done as quickly as possible. But um, as accurately as possible. And will they be um, informed, or perhaps perhaps you can tell us one way or the other whether they they will be informed by the fact that the British government thinks that they've gathered enough evidence to say that Russia has been manufacturing this uh, this particular nerve agent, despite the fact that they are a signatory to the OPCW? I think um, you know, the, the, as much British evidence as, as possible will be given to the team that come in. Uh, and they've got their own databases, um, which all of the countries have got access to. So um, you, the Russians will have declared uh, some of their programmes. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, the... Um, uh, the Organisation for Protection of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, is that they're only there destroying and monitoring um, the uh, the chemical weapons that have been declared to them. Okay. Uh, they won't know which ones haven't been. That was Philip Ingram, a former British military intelligence officer. President Donald Trump, who once called New Hampshire a drug-infested den, will travel to the state for the first time since the 2016 campaign today to unveil his plan to combat the opioid crisis. Overdose deaths from the opioid epidemic in the US are equal to a September the 11th every three weeks. That's according to the White House. The problem is so bad that it's the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. It's not just destroying lives and families, but also proving very trying for the nation's criminal justice systems. Now, a new approach to solving the issue in Buffalo, New York, could be a model for the rest of the country. From Buffalo, the BBC's Nada Taufik has this report from the country's first opioid court. All right. Good morning. Part 12 of Buffalo City Court is now in session. The Honorable Craig D. Hanna presiding. Thank you. Please be seated. Judge Craig Hanna takes a special interest in the people that come through his courtroom. Brandon, what's going on, man? Each day, his goal is basic yet ambitious, to keep them alive. So your tax is clean. So what's going on? Why are you missing these calls? I honestly don't know. He presides over the nation's first opioid court, set up 10 months ago with a grant from the federal government. This new experiment might just be America's best new defense against its deadliest drug crisis. When offenders who appear in court are addicts, Judge Hanna immediately puts their case on hold. All right, I'll release you today and I need you to report here tomorrow so we can go over everything about your treatment, okay? No longer viewed as criminals, they are given help, support, and a chance to have their charges dropped or reduced. I think we've made a tremendous mistake 
in the 60s and 70s and the 80s and 90s were just locking people up. It didn't work. And we're not going to make that same mistake now because we have the research and the data to show that you cannot lock up an addiction. Because the second they walk out of jail, they're going to fiend for that substance that they had. So what happened with this fentanyl? I didn't use. Anything? No. You know you can tell us, right? Participants are given treatment within hours. They agree to inpatient or outpatient care, drug tests, a curfew, and once clean, daily court appearances for at least 30 days. Standing right up against the judge's bench, they're encouraged to talk openly about their setbacks and even their relapses. This courtroom is small. It has about 40 seats. And Judge Hannah knows that for many, this is the only support system they have left. Having them check in each day and trying to form a personal bond is a way of keeping them on track. Here, I'll, I'll have this one and then I'll make the next one for you. Carly Mauer has been clean and back home with her father since starting the program two months ago. She was arrested for drug possession and used prescription pills and heroin for over a decade. But finally, she feels like herself again. When you're in jail or when you're on the streets, you're, you're a number to correctional officers. You're a dog to drug dealers. You, you really don't have any value or self-worth. You don't have any sense of self at all. So when somebody looks at you and actually cares about what you're going through in your life, what your problems are, how can we help you, it really reminds you that deep inside there is a person, you know, that, that needs and deserves love. Carly doesn't have any illusions about how difficult it will be to remain clean. Heroin has had a powerful hold over her. In one week alone, she was revived three times after overdosing. Opiates are so incredibly powerful on your mind and on your body. You, I've stared death in the face multiple times, multiple overdoses where, you know, they tell me, you know, you, you shouldn't be alive right now. I would wake up in, in ambulances. I had overdosed at the bus station, you know, in the bathroom. Immediately after, every time, the, the first thing I would do was call my dealer, check, to, check all my pockets to see if I had any heroin left. Imagine every morning when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that, hit, that hits your head is, I hope Carly makes it today. And then that very real possibility is that she's not going to make it through the day. Her father, Bruce, once found her lifeless body in the bathroom of their home. With this court, I've never seen her in a better state of mind. But I just fear it's that she's on a real regiment. She has to go to court. That she's being told to do it by a judge superior. How was your weekend? Um, my weekend was really great. I got to spend some time with my boyfriend, my family. Okay, well, that's good. Carly is trying to develop a plan for the day when she no longer has to check in with the court. She hopes to have a career in criminal justice, just like Judge Hannah, himself a recovering addict. The only difference between me and the individuals you saw today is one thing, is time. Once they have as much time clean as I have, then they can accomplish anything in life. While it's too early to draw firm conclusions, in Buffalo, they already think it's a success. The number of overdose deaths has significantly decreased, and that has other cities taking notice. That report was from the BBC's Nada Taufik on uh, the United States' first opioid court as a possible template for tackling the opioid epidemic. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. 
We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic, every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The results of an international trial of a stem cell treatment for multiple sclerosis, or MS, have been described by doctors as a possible game-changer for many people living with the disease. MS affects the brain and the spinal cord and can cause problems with vision, movement and balance. The trial treatment involves wiping out a patient's immune system with cancer drugs, then rebooting it with a stem cell transplant, which appears to halt the disease and reduce symptoms. So what does this treatment achieve that others don't? Professor Basil Sharrock is a neurologist at the Sheffield Hospital in the north of England, where some multiple sclerosis patients took part in the trial. So this treatment is more effective than um, standard therapies. In the trial, we took the patients who have active disease who have not responded optimally to the standard therapy that we have and randomised them into either continuing um, with the standard therapies, i.e. optimising the treatment to the best available one, or giving them the stem cell transplantation. Those who ended up in the transplantation arm did um, significantly better than those patients who continued um, to receive the standard therapy. So the results really indicate that the treatment is superior than what we can offer our patients at the moment. Okay, and that sounds like very good news for those patients on whom it, it made an impact, but can it work for anybody with multiple sclerosis or or is it a specific section of people with particular kinds of symptoms? Yeah, unfortunately, it's the latter. So in, in MS, the illness runs normally two phases. The initial phase where inflammation is uh, uh, the factor which um, drives the progression of uh, disability, the symptoms, the, the relapses. And the second uh, phase, which is um, neurodegenerative phase, which causes the gradual worsening of the condition. Now, the bulk of the therapy that we have at the moment and the stem cell treatments target the initial phase. So this treatment really is only effective in patients with very active relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. The treatment really, on the whole, is not very effective in second progressive MS, but can be helpful to some patients with progressive disease if they still have an element of inflammation. There is a case study which people can uh, go and take a look at on, the, on our website, bbc.com forward slash news. Uh, uh, the particular case study is of a woman who underwent the treatment and, and it shows her apparently entirely free of MS symptoms. I and mean, she talks about it as a miracle. Is that typical for those patients who have uh, responded positively to this particular trial? Indeed, those patients... Uh, with very active disease, they would have had a large number of relapses, um, causing a lot of symptoms to them, affecting their ability to lead a normal life. And then after therapy, the bulk of those patients would really became quite stable. So, And if you manage to deliver the treatment to the patients quite early, before they become very disabled, you can also, to a degree, reverse the disability. So that particular patient, for instance, has become symptom-free and, and it is not uncommon for, again, patients, if they're treated early enough, to have a, a similar response. That was Professor Basil Sharak, a neurologist from Sheffield Hospital, who has been involved in that multiple sclerosis uh, trial. Uh, you can read more about this on our website, bbc.com forward slash news.
to the United States now, where a number of senior Republicans have warned President Trump not to try to shut down an investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. In tweets over the weekend, Mr Trump reiterated that there had been no collusion between his team and Russia and called the probe, not for the first time, a witch hunt. He added that it was dominated by hardened Democrats. The investigation is, of course, led by Robert Mueller, a highly regarded former head of the FBI who is a Republican. The BBC's Anthony Zerka is in Washington. I asked him what was the significance of President Trump not only repeating his witch hunt comment, but mentioning Mr Mueller for the first time by name as well. That was what was noteworthy about this, mentioning Robert Mueller by name and tying that into his previous allegations that this was a witch hunt. I think what we can see is the framework of the White House's defense, Donald Trump's defense being constructed here. Uh, He's saying that... uh, The people involved in this are an anti-Trump deep state establishment aligned against him and that the entire premise of the investigation is biased and corrupt. In other words, this is uh, kind of like that legal defense, the fruit of a poisonous tree, which is used to throw sometimes evidence out of court. Well, he's saying the entire investigation is a poisonous tree. So anything that Robert Mueller finds, any kind of evidence of wrongdoing uh, that is somehow tainted, uh, it's not a legal argument per se, but it is an argument that Donald Trump and the White House could use in the court of public opinion if there's something that comes out of these investigations. Uh, President Trump's personal attorney, uh, John Dowd, uh, called for an end to the Mueller inquiry. In his own way, President Trump is asking for it to be shut down. What sort of response has all of this uh, prompted uh, amongst Republicans? Well, you heard several Republican senators, John McCain and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham, say that that Donald Trump can't shut the investigation down, that Robert Mueller is is a well-regarded investigator. He should be allowed to proceed in his investigation until it reaches its conclusion. Uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, there could be a couple of reasons why Donald Trump decided to do this at that, this point. It could be because he feels like with the, uh, the Intelligence Committee in the House uh, Republican conclusion that there was no evidence collusion and uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions firing Andrew McCabe, that he felt somewhat emboldened to start this constructing This is the FBI deputy. Deputy Director. Exactly, exactly, for being uh, less than responsive to or less than forthcoming uh, to an inquiry as, uh, regarding his involvement in the Hillary Clinton investigation. But it also could be we heard reports uh, last week that Robert Mueller is now looking into the Trump organization's business dealings with Russia. And you could be feeling more pressure coming from that. So uh, the White House has walked back the statement from the lawyer and walked back what uh, Donald Trump said a bit, saying, no, he's not calling for Robert Mueller's firing. He isn't planning on firing him. The lawyer was talking on his own personal views and not for the White House in this case. Uh, But this is what you see. Donald Trump has a weekend free. He sends out a series of tweets, makes a series of inflammatory comments. And then in the days, mornings after that, the White House starts to say, well, this is what he really meant. It's not as, as inflammatory as you thought. This is where it's going from here. That was the BBC's Anthony Zerka speaking to us from Washington. Um, just time to remind you that if you want to follow up on any of these stories that you've heard on NewsHour, you can go to our website, bbc.com forward slash news. Although I just look at the home page and the top five most watched stories, 
Not a single one of those is what we've covered on our programme today. So uh, do go and take a look at an alternative view of what's on the news. That's it for this edition of the programme. Thank you very much for your company this past hour. Always a pleasure to hear from you if you'd like to tell us what you think about what you have heard on our programme. At BBC News Hour is the programme's Twitter handle at Razia Iqbal is mine. Till the next time. Bye-bye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.